Welcome to the Always Evolving Podcast. This is a podcast about living an awake, aware, conscious life. If it helps to evolve us as individuals, we will likely cover it at some point on this podcast. Because after all, we are always evolving and in all ways. I'm your host, Erica Boucher. I am really excited to talk with my good friend and published author, Kristen Minieri, about her new book, Better Daily Mindfulness Habits, Simple Changes with Lifelong Impact. Kristen, I am really thrilled. I've been watching you and following you as you've been working on this book, and I'm thrilled that it's done. And I cannot wait to see the impact that this has on people's lives. Oh, thank you. Well, I'm thrilled that it's done too. <laughs> as someone who has also written a book, it's, a, it's quite an undertaking, but I really enjoyed doing it. And I used a lot of the principles from the book actually to keep myself on track and not feel stressed out and all of that. So this is definitely the fun part is sharing it with people and getting to talk about it. And so thank you. Thanks for doing this. Oh, my pleasure. So what was it that inspired you to write this book? Yeah, I remember sitting on a beach probably a year and a half ago now. And I was reading a book about habits. I was reading a book by Gretchen Rubin called Better Than Before. And it just, I don't know what it was. It was like you've been trying to like break into a a safe for a few years. And it's like you finally got all the right numbers, like the combination, the lock clicks. There was something about the really doing that deep dive into how we change our behavior. And it, it ended up, producing me to, or prompting me to read a whole bunch of books about habits. This was sort of the first one that I read about it. But this idea that there's actual methodology for how we change our behavior. And we all want to in some ways. There's things that we wish we didn't do. There's things that we wish we did more. And we know that if we did them with consistency, we would have different results in our lives and our health and our relationship. But when we try to do things, they you know, sometimes they work and sometimes they don't. And so when I kind of started diving into all these books about habits and how we create them, it was definitely a light bulb moment for me because one area of my life that I really wanted more traction, that I really wanted to feel like I was more consistent, that I was really headed in the direction that I wanted to be heading was in the realm of mindfulness. And I had already been certified as a mindfulness teacher at that point. Actually, no, wait, I was partway through my mindfulness teaching training but really just noticing like mindfulness is hard. Like it's this paradox of it's easy to be mindful if you remember to be mindful. It's like, (laughs) so when I kind of brought these two worlds together, mindfulness and habits, when they sort of intersected for me for the first time, that was like a a huge aha moment for me. And I thought, I want to write a book about this. This is what I want to teach people because that was the answer for me. How do you stay mindful? Well, you use the automated part of the mind to create more opportunities to have mindful moments and to have more presence and awareness and awake, you know, all of the things that we want when we talk about being mindful. So yeah, so that was really, that's that's kind of what put me on the path of, of writing this book. That's really interesting because I think 
the automatic pilot that we tend to fall into is what keeps us from being mindful. Mm -hmm. And so you're talking about creating such a consistent set of habits that that you set yourself up for success to fall into and stay in a mindfulness practice. Mm -hmm. Am I picking that up accurately? Yeah. And I think one of the things that got clear for me is that when I think about mindfulness as a place that I visit versus like a a characteristic that I'm just supposed to have, Mm. it makes more sense to me that I have to put myself in the way of mindfulness as many times as I can. So just as, as an example, one of the practices that I've been working on is that I keep my car tuned into a classical music channel. And what that has created is that when I get in the car and I hear that music, it's the cue for me to just take a couple of deep breaths. So I use the habit of listening to classical music and making sure that it's tuned to create an opportunity for me to remember to be mindful. So that's kind of how the math ended up working for me is that we think of it as a state we can go in and out of, a place that we can visit and then depart. That's how it ended up making more sense to me. Mm. So you talked about habit building methodology. Can you say more about that? Yeah. So along the way, along this journey, I, as I was saying before, ended up reading a crazy number of books about habits. And one of the ones that I came across was a book called Tiny Habits by BJ Fogg. And I ended up going through his certification program and actually learning right under him. And he's a behavior scientist from Stanford University. And he definitely aligns with the habit loop, the cue, routine, reward, with a couple of different nuances that he adds to it, which to me makes the building of habits with a very methodical and strategic approach much more attainable, more approachable. So the first thing is that we just, we start really small. We do tiny things. We're such a species of just grand gestures and quantum leaps. And the trouble is that when we say, I'm going to run a marathon, it sounds good to others, to ourselves. Like we like the identity that gets created when we say, I'm going to do this big thing. But The trouble is if that big thing is vastly different from the thing that we're already doing, which maybe is not running at all, (laughs) it's such a big leap that for a lot of us, you know, mere mortals, it's unsustainable. Like it's just not something that we can actually do with some consistency, with some reliability. And so what BJ Fogg discovered is that when we start really small, like scale up to the marathon later. But when we start really small, like we just walk around the block every day. Like we just make a commitment. Like I'm just going to, I'm going to walk to the end of my street and back every single day. Or I'm going to go for a two minute walk around my cul-de-sac every single day. We start to build that success momentum that starts to prove to ourselves, oh yeah, I can do this. I can rely on myself to do what I said I would do. So the habit loop is first, Yes, we create some sort of prompt. That's the cue that says, do this behavior. We have the, then we initiate the behavior. That's the routine. But we keep that behavior really, really small. And then the third thing that BJ Fogg uncovered is that the reward, so the cue, routine, reward, 
that reward needs to happen instantaneously. A lot of the things that we want to change about ourselves, let's say we want to lose weight, that reward is living very, very far out in the future. And so what BJ Fogg realized is for some of us, that's not going to provide enough juice for our brain to really latch on to that behavior, for it to be really interested in turning that into an unconscious habit. So he's a big proponent of doing these sort of mini celebrations. So after you do the thing, you know, maybe it's take the three breaths or go for the walk around the block or pause before you put the first bite of food in your mouth. You just have a little mini celebration, just like a yes, or I did it. It doesn't even have to be out loud. But this moment where you tell your brain, I did it, and that felt good. And when you feel good about a behavior, or when a behavior makes you feel good, we are far more apt to turn that into an automation. And we know that to be true, because think about how many bad things we do. I mean, how long do you think it would take you to start a habit of eating a bowl of ice cream every day? after dinner. Mm. Not 21 days. <laughs> I could start that habit in two days, maybe Pretty, even yeah. one day, one. Right? <laughs> right? Because it feels good. It's intrinsically rewarding. And so if there's things that we want to do that are harder or, you know, maybe it's just challenging or it's not something that we're used to doing, it's uncomfortable, having that kind of manufactured reward attached to it is really, really important. So that's pretty much the approach that I align with. And I go through that a lot more in depthly in the book. But I think just to sort of tie this all together, I think the idea that we have to approach habit building with intention and with deliberateness and have a method for doing it I think that that thought is what's really turning people on about this whole idea of habits because we all realize we have them, but none of us have really figured out or even really done a lot of thinking about how did I get them and how can I repeat that with the things that I like that I'm doing and how can I stop doing the things that I don't like that I'm doing. And that really all comes down to having a really deliberate approach to our habit building. So in the book, you talk about self-directed neuroplasticity. Does that have to do with habits, the habits that you're talking about? Yeah, totally. So that is such a nerdy, wonderful form of science that I could talk about probably just for the rest of our 45 minutes together. But self-directed neuroplasticity is basically this idea that we make our own minds, that our minds are malleable, that we shape them. And that whatever it is that you decide that you are, I'm not good at math, I'm terrible with directions, that we actually can change those things about ourselves with when we actually put some focus and attention and deliberateness into that. Our minds are constantly changing and wiring and different neurons and synapses are constantly connecting. We know that happens whether you are paying attention to it or not. We are constantly changing our minds. Our minds are constantly growing. And so the idea of self-directed neuroplasticity is that we turn our intention to the job of rewiring ourselves. And it sounds like, oh my gosh, how would you do that? But you already do that. You know, anytime you decide to go to a different store, maybe you've never been to that store and now you have to take a different path and on different roads your brain is wiring that path. It's now going to remember, oh yeah, we go right here and we go left and remember there's that cool building on the right-hand side that we like. We're constantly in the process of of making our own minds. With self-directed neuroplasticity, we just do it on purpose. 
Mm. So I always say that our lives are a product of the choices that we make, but it could also be said that we are a product of the habits that we have created. And it sounds like you're giving a really wonderful formula for being intentional about the habits that we're creating. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it was funny. I was just having lunch with a friend and client just earlier today. And we were talking about how, as a coach, one of the things that I'm most fascinated with when I'm working with a client is the fact that we go through this process of figuring out who we are. Like that's actually something that we can do in this lifetime is like, who am I? And the truth is that who we are is pretty much the sum of our tendencies and patterns and habits is just another way of saying that Mm -hmm. who we are, are the things that we do over and over and over again. And to me, evolution, when we actually start to engage in our evolution with some real awareness and intention, it's really just noticing like, oh yeah, I'm doing that thing again. Like I have this tendency to react that way or to do things this way or to get uncomfortable in this type of situation. And when we take a step back and we start to notice like we're very predictable, like our behavior, what we're going to do again and again and again is pretty consistent. And so when we start to do that work of just noticing, just noticing, huh, what is it like, what is my approach to life? What are some of my common thoughts? What are the things that I think to seem to say a lot, do a lot? We start to notice, wow, I'm, I'm a pretty repetitive, you know, reliable human being. And I think that the process of figuring that out and noticing and kind of almost like creating like a manual about ourselves, like this is how this Kristen works. Here's what she does. Here's what she likes. Here's what she doesn't like. That to me is the first step in actually maybe changing or even just having more compassion and love for ourselves. Mm. Yeah. Wow. It's wonderful. And I think it's, the timing is perfect for this because I know in the last few years with the political climate and everything that's been going on, I think it was hard for a lot of people, including myself, to actually be mindful and be present with what was happening for them mentally and emotionally, for me, mentally and emotionally. It was difficult. It was kind of, I felt like I almost needed to check out because it was just too painful to witness and feel it. And so I think that the timeliness of this is perfect because it's time to kind of, for anybody else who might have done that, it's time to come back to ourselves and reestablish that connection because that's not a sustainable way to live. Mm. Yeah. And I think that that noticing process doesn't necessarily always mean that we get to work on ourselves. Like there's going to be times where we need to really intentionally defer some of that work. You know, I I was just having this conversation with the Thrive group that I'm in on every Tuesday. And we were talking about like, what are some things that you notice, like maybe tendencies? Like for me right now, I can tell you, I have a tendency to eat a lot of sugar right now. And we're going through quite a period of transition. There's a lot of, I don't want to say stress, but there's just a lot of challenges that we're dealing with right now with our move and with the changing of our lives. And so I noticed that probably one of the ways that I self-soothe is with sugar. It's just one of the things that I do to maybe Mm -hmm. cope or whatever. And 
I have been really clear with myself. Like I'm aware this is happening. I see you. I see you, human being, Kristen, craving sugar, eating sugar, getting really loose about our sugar boundaries with our kids. And I have made the agreement with myself that I'm deferring that work, the work of changing that or just even addressing that until July. Like I'm just like, yeah, later. I'm going to do this later. And it's not like a procrastination I'm really, it's a choice. It's like a deliberate Mm -hmm. choice that I'm making. So I'm not sure that like circles back perfectly with what you're I think it does. I think it does. Because sometimes, yeah, I think we have to make choices with what is going on in our lives at a given moment and time. And yeah, I have done the same thing. And I think probably even around what I was just talking about, the political climate, like I just, I just kind of had to check out from it for a while. And part of it is it's just necessity. Like I can only, we can only attend to so much at one time. And I think sometimes we have to give ourselves a break. Mm -hmm. Yeah, (laughs) totally. So that leads perfectly into the next question that I wanted to ask you about, which is about eating mindfully. How do we eat more mindfully? (laughs) Yeah, that was actually one of my favorite parts of the book to write. I have a whole chapter about eating mindfully. To me, the irony of eating mindfully, or I'm just going to say this a little bit differently. Eating is something that we do all day long. You know, some of us every 90 minutes, some of us are, you know, just breakfast, lunch, and dinner, but it is a huge part of our lives. If you think about the planning, the shopping, the preparing, what we spend on food, and yet a tremendous, an enormous amount of food goes into our bodies and out the other side without us really (sighs) thinking about it Mm. or even noticing it. So from a standpoint of just out of the sheer just honoring of how much work we put into what ends up being into our mouth, even if you don't even think about the farmer and the truck and the grocery clerk and like all of that. I mean, even if you just look at what you had to do to get that food on your fork, that alone says to me, wow, this is worth reverence. Like this is Mm. worth savoring. But then when you actually start thinking about, yes, we are eating to nourish ourselves. We have to eat in order to survive. That's no way to live. (laughs) You know, like when you think about the amount of work that we put into our food, to have the practice to be able to savor and treasure and even just taste what it is that we're putting in our mouths, to me, that's a very worthwhile pursuit. Just from that sheer fact of being able to just tune into what it is that we're eating and be able to have a much more flavorful and delicious experience of really not just eating, but being alive. Eating is such a huge part of being alive. So I think that doesn't quite answer the how to, but I'll, and I will answer that, but I want to just say that first is that it's so much more than eating so that we can make better choices or eating so that we don't overeat, things like that. It's really about, we get this one wild and crazy life. I think that's how Mary Oliver says it. And eating is a big part of it. I don't know exactly how many hours we spend in our lives eating, but I bet you it's a lot when you think about food preparation and shopping and all of that. It has the potential. We have an opportunity to make that 
a time of just pure delight. So the how to is just that tuning in. It's having that commitment to a practice that when you sit down to eat, you pause. So that's one of my daily practices is when we sit down to eat, close my eyes for a few seconds, maybe 10, 15 seconds. And I tune into my hunger. You know, I just acknowledge what it feels like to be hungry, to see my body go through the discomfort of wanting food. And then this deep gratitude for I'm about to address this need with this plate of food that's right in front of me. And and just taking that moment of almost making it a, what's the word? Like a, almost like a spiritual experience of like, yeah, a ritual. Yes. Yeah. So that to me, the how to is truly just a tuning in. And I give a couple of different options in the book on how to do that and some bad habits to break that really stand in the way of eating mindfully, but just that first pause, just pausing 10, 15 seconds, noticing I'm about to eat. I'm so grateful, so grateful to be able to take care of my needs. I'm so grateful to be able to eat this food. I'm so grateful for who I'm eating with. Just pausing to just even to honor and recognize that. Mm. There's a lot of work for me to do in this area in particular. When I was growing up, dinner time was not necessarily a pleasant experience. And, you know, we would all sit around the table, my parents, me and my brother, and we were kind of captive audiences. And that was, for whatever reason, unfortunately, that was the time that my dad chose to reprimand. So we would be eating dinner and we couldn't go anywhere. And he would, whatever he was upset about or if whatever we had done wrong, that's where it was discussed. And it's not surprising that as I grew up, I ended up with digestive issues. And still to this day, I really have to, work really hard to stop and sit and slowly eat and enjoy my meal because somewhere along the way in that programming, (laughs) I kind of established a habit of just eat and get it done, eat, get it done and move on to the next thing. And I've brought some awareness into that over the years, but there's definitely more that can be done. So I think that your book, as I get to dive into it even more and read it a second and third time, it's going to help me kind of maybe break that habit. I mean, it's a great, I love that you approach mindfulness from the perspective of habits Mm. because that's a doable thing. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, and I love that you have taken the time to connect some of those dots. I mean, we were pretty much formed by the time we were 12 years old. You know, Mm -hmm. like we had the life that we got, we got the family that we got, we had the experience that we got, and we humans are a surviving species and we figure out how to manage, get through, tolerate, survive, whatever gets Mm -hmm. handed to us as children. And then we forget that we made all that up. (laughs) So like years later, you are eating with your wonderful husband, Brian, and Mm -hmm. dinner's wonderful. And yet the programming to get through dinner as fast as possible, to get out of there, is still there. And without the awareness, without the ability to just slow down and connect the dots and say, why do I do that? Why am I slightly anxious or so fixated on getting done with this food and moving on to the next thing? And being able to actually look back and think, huh, like doing that work that you did, that excavation of like, 
Oh yeah, it's probably that. And you could go six more layers deep with that. And I think there would Mm -hmm. be such great value, but even just being able to make that connection. Oh yeah. And I don't have that anymore. I could sit and eat dinner with Brian for hours and it would be a wonderful experience. That to me, that can't happen without awareness and awareness doesn't happen unless we slow down long enough to look, to actually tune in. Right. The self-inquiry and actually paying attention to what what our thoughts are and what's driving us. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The whole point of mindfulness, in my opinion, is to just notice what's happening around us, but inside us. And often mm. what's happening inside us as re- response to what's happening around us. And what we do normally is we're in this big rush to change what's happening around us so what we can feel better about what's happening inside of us. And the trouble is it's a big project changing everything around us all the time (laughs) to make sure that we feel better on the inside, that the inside feels better. And what I say is it may need more practice to learn how to move ourselves internally rather than having to constantly change our outer circumstances but it's definitely less effort. And it definitely, when we actually start to practice on a regular basis and we can get to that state of steadiness faster, oh my gosh, it's just so much easier because we're we're just not going to change the world around us. Look at for many of us the last year and a half, if if anything the pandemic taught us is we have very little control over what's Mm -hmm. happening around us, Mm -hmm. but we have so much control over what's happening inside of us. But we have to tune in. And so the book is really all about creating these little portals in your life so that you have these little sort of pit stops where you tune back into yourself, tune back in to have compassion, tune back in to have patience, tune back in to just listen to your body, listen to your thoughts. Just these little portals that you sort of sprinkle throughout your life using habits. Such as having classical music on when you get in the car, which is like an instant reminder of, okay, take a breath and get centered and taking a few moments to take a breath and close your eyes before eating. Those are the little portals you're talking about. Yeah. Yeah. And and they can be small little habits, like a couple of deep breaths. It could be, you know, when I turn my coffee machine on in the morning, I'm going to do sit down and do maybe a 30 second body scan or If I've got a couple minutes waiting for my coffee to brew, maybe I've got three or five minutes just taking my awareness from the top of my head all the way down to the tip of the toes and just checking in what's happening in my body. Where am I holding tension? Where am I holding maybe some anxiety or what feels tight or uncomfortable? Or we could do something at the end of our workday, a mindfulness practice that someone might not think of as being a mindfulness practice is actually having a closing ritual for your workday. So if you decide it's 5 o'clock or 5.30 or 6 o'clock, and this is really important for those of us who are working from home, especially if this is new, is having a ritual of now my workday is done. Doesn't matter that it's only 10 feet away from my home life and I can walk back in and turn on my computer or look at my phone or check my email. But this mindfulness ritual of just saying, okay, I'm going to plan my next day. I'm going to write down things that I'm concerned about. I'm going to power off my computer. I'm going to turn the lights off in in my office. A ritual that says now my workday is done. So we're not re-dipping 
back into our work life all night long. You know, it's a terrible mm. habit to just keep on coming back and into our work zone, whether it's emotionally or physically. It's just a practice. And once we start practicing that and we create a habit around it, then it's like, oh, that's what I do. I finish my work day at six. I power my computer completely off. And I say to myself, you're done for the day. And then, then I'm fully present for the rest of my life. Mm. I'm really glad you went there because that's exactly where I was going next, which is about mindfulness at work. And it's a really good point, especially working at home as you do. And as I do, it can be easy if we don't set those boundaries, it could be easy for it to just bleed into even into the night where you're waking up in the middle of the night and you're checking your emails. And not that I do that, but I'm sure I have if I was waiting for an email. So yeah. Very good point. And it's interesting. I love what you're talking about because really it's about self-awareness, but it's more than that. It's about being aware of yourself and how you're responding and reacting in any given moment, but it's also being aware of your environment and what's happening around you and outside of you and how you are interacting with that external environment. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And noticing maybe your triggers you know, I was just speaking with a client this morning and we were talking about how, you know, some of us have a real disrespect trigger. When we sense that we've been disrespected, we really go from zero to 50 really fast. You know, we kind of blow up. Some mm -hmm. people have a real trigger about not being seen or feeling rejected or being rushed. But even just noticing that when, when we have these big emotions, when we have a big response to something that's happening outside of us, that's such a great piece of data. I know it doesn't feel good and it probably, to even call it a great anything would probably even be confronting. But the truth is that those kind of explosive moments that we can reflect back on later and think, wow, I've really lost it. That is a incredibly helpful data point because it's like, okay, why? Like what's going on? Like that button doesn't exist in everybody. Not everybody loses it when someone cuts them off. You know, I, I can tell you, I don't really have a lot around driving and how other, I don't like it when people don't signal that's frustrating to me, but there's people who really lose their mind when they're driving <laughs> and it's like, okay, let's tune into that. Like, what's up with that? What's going on? Like what is happening inside that has you be so reactive to that thing that's happening outside? Cause I can tell you, you're not going to change all the drivers in the world. Like that's definitely not the route to take. The only choice we have is to say, okay, I'm going to start to tune into and maybe modify how I respond to all of these other crazy drivers. But it, it really, as we've been talking about, it's this inside out approach. That's really the bedrock of what I teach and what I write about and what I coach about. And I know that's totally your lane as well. So it's cool to be able to talk to you about this. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So talk more about building presence in our relationships. Mm. Yeah. Well, one of the sort of data points that I came across recently that I thought was really interesting, in fact, it was from a book that I read a few years ago called The Longevity Study or about the Longevity Study. And these researchers have had studied one of the biggest research projects of its kind 
people from the moment they were born to the moment they died and really just trying to figure out what predicted their life. You know, the fact that why did this person live to 72 and this person live to 95? And what they found again and again and again, that it was, it was not exercise or diet that was the strongest predictors of longevity, but our relationships and more specifically the robustness of our relationships. The fact that we had multiple relationships, that we felt connected, loved, that we had a deep sense of belonging. So we know that on a physiological level, our health is impacted by our sense of belonging to other people. And if anything, if the pandemic has taught us anything, it is that our mental health in particular is highly, highly influenced by our social health. Are we with other people? Do we feel like we belong? Do we feel like we're loved? And for those people who really struggled during the pandemic, many of them realized that that level of isolation, not being able to go into an office, not being able to go to a school, not being able to just go into a local coffee shop and chat with a stranger had a huge, huge, huge impact. So I say that because I think it's important when we approach relationships with an aim for mindfulness, what's underneath that is it's a very fundamental part of our well-being that we have good relationships. And so I connect that dot because I want to say, hey, like being present in your relationships and making sure that they're really nourishing and nurturing and fulfilling is really, really, really important for your health. So if if we needed a self-serving reason (laughs) to have better relationships, that's it. You're going to live longer and be healthier because of them. But Mm. I think that the biggest thing about our relationships is that they get better the more we're actually in them. And you allude to that in your question is this idea of being really fully present in our relationships. And that, yes, could look like listening. You know, there's a a practice in here about really listening to appreciate, not listening for how you'll respond. Uh, I have a practice in the book called A Big Long Hug. And science has shown that when you hug Our average hugs are just a few seconds long, probably a second or two. But when we hug someone for 20 seconds or more, we just get this like rush of oxytocin and all these wonderful chemicals, serotonin. We really do feel better when we hug someone for a long time. But that presence, like really tuning into someone and feeling the depth of how much you cherish that person and having that be something that we all do all the time. It sounds crazy and like, you know, it's going to take a lot of time, but really who doesn't have 20 seconds to hug someone that they love? Who doesn't have an extra 10 seconds that when they're leaving the house, instead of just kind of hollering, like, see you later, going and finding that person and putting a hand on them and say, Hey, I'm going to be gone for an hour. I'll see you when I get back you know, and maybe finding them when you get back and having one of those big, long hugs. So it's just simple practices that become habits. You know, I grew up in a family with my stepmother and my dad. I was there every other weekend. And my stepmother was absolutely resolute that no one left the house without coming and giving her a hug. I mean, even if my dad was just going around the corner to pick up milk, he had to come and find her and give her a hug. And if not, she was really upset about it. And I grew up feeling like, oh yeah, that really matters. Like when someone leaves, it really matters that you acknowledge that really sweet practice that she taught me. 
Mm, that's lovely. So talk to me about mindfulness with regards to technology and our devices. I know for me, you know, I run a business where I'm organizing and leading yoga, wellness, and adventure travel. And so I've got groups of people, you know, 16 different people booking into a trip. And sometimes I can't remember if I got an email from somebody, a text message, if it it was a Facebook message. And so there's like, we've just got information coming at us Mm -hmm. from every direction. And then you multiply that by a lot of people when you're dealing with large numbers of people and it can feel overwhelming. So talk to me about technology and our devices and and how to bring mindfulness into that equation. Hmm. Well, I think the first thing is to acknowledge that the people who create our technology, let's just look at the at the smartphone. They were created with a lot of intention to make us be really sucked into the device. Like the, all of our apps, they're designed to grab our attention and keep our attention. It's almost like, a, I like to think of it like Vegas. Like they don't make it easy for you to exit Vegas because you can't find the exit signs. There's no clocks. Like a casino is designed to keep you in it as long as possible. And so your smartphone is as well. So just even acknowledging that there are some really sophisticated technology at work that is designed to keep you coming back to it and to keep you in it as long as possible. So that means that how are we going to counteract that with the same level of sophistication? And to me, that is being really clear and intentional and deliberate about what are my habits around my phone. Because as you had alluded to, there are so many ways that you can get sucked in. And and yes, you're using it for business. But if we were all to look at the number of times we pick up our phones every single day, or the ways that we sort of knee jerk grab it every single time we're in a position of waiting, you know, maybe we're waiting for a doctor's appointment, or we're waiting at a light, or we're standing in line at the grocery store. This new, you know, it's only about a decade old knee-jerk reaction of reaching into our phone, our purse, or our pocket, and pulling out our phone to just see: Did someone text me? Did anything change on my social media feed? It's got a real hold on us, and it's creating a lot of compulsive behavior. And I think most of us are, are not liking it. Like most of us would say. I wish that I had a different relationship with my phone. And so the answer is habits. It's having habits like, you know, a box that we put our phone in at a certain time every day. And we just know that like, that's when I lock up my phone. Some people call it like phone jail (laughs) and you just, you put it away and you decide I'm not looking at my phone during this time. Going back to what we were talking about before about being mindful at mealtime establishing a device-free dinner protocol for your house that nobody has devices at the table that because they get in the way of us connecting with each other they get in the way of us connecting with ourselves with the food that's in front of us so having blocks of time also right before bed and first thing in the morning uh, making sure that we're keeping our phones maybe in, in another room so that we're not waking up and immediately going right to our device to to see what's happening on social media or checking text. So we've got to be really 
it's almost like a battle that we have to wage against technology. And I love technology. Like I, I use it. It's made a big difference in my life. And I know that left unchecked, it can produce a lot of compulsive behavior. And it's created a lot of habits that I don't want to have in my life. Mm, I can relate to that. I know when we, if we get away for a weekend or we go hiking into the woods and we lose reception, I love that (laughs) because it takes away the option to compulsively check the phone. Mm -hmm. And what you're suggesting is even better, making the conscious choice to not let it have that hold over you. Mm -hmm. So yeah, I think that's a whole new thing that humans are having to even think about, which Mm -hmm. is the role that our devices play in our lives. Yeah. Yeah. And really realizing that we have to bring some awareness to it. Like, as I was saying, like left unchecked, it's just going to beep and buzz and bang and constantly grab our attention. And the thing to really, for me, the thing that really prompts me, other than the fact that I don't like the way that makes me feel, is that knowing that people make a lot of money off my attention. Every time Mm. I scroll and I click and I watch and I go to the next thing, someone, probably the platform that I'm on, is making money off of my eyeballs. And my attention is not always for sale. I am not up for sale 24 hours a day. There are going to be times where I step away from that whole process of getting me to look at things and then maybe buy things and you know charging someone for my attention. I have to be really clear that I need to set some boundaries, that I am not open for business 24 mm-hmm. hours a day. And it's, yeah, it's really challenging. Phones are fun and they're really addictive. So it has to happen with some deliberateness. Yeah. You're really good at that. You're really good at, I know there are certain times when oh, I'm not going to get her cause she's not going to check her phone at, you know, until a certain time tomorrow, which is wonderful. I know for me, same thing. I don't want to be readily available all the time. I don't have the ringer on on my phone. I can't even remember the last time I actually had the ringer on my phone. I'm not even sure what my ringer is set as (laughs) because I don't want to hear it, you know, and I don't have notifications from Facebook or any other. I, I did not set up to get notifications. And initially when Brian and I first got together, his phone was like, pinging and dinging and making noises like all the time because it would be a Facebook message or a text or something or someone commented or liked a post or something. And eventually he kind of got on board with that and he's turned his off too. So it's really wonderful. You'll never hear a ding or a ring or anything like that in our house. Mm. And I don't think I am ever going to change that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it is a funny thing when you start to notice what these phones have done, like how present, how like sort of omnipresent they are. And I think to myself, I can't imagine if like, if my grandfather was sort of revived from the grave and was walking around, he would be equal parts dumbfounded and appalled at what he sees. You know, I see kids biking down the street and they're biking and they have their phone out. You know, if you're at a restaurant, I was eating out a couple of nights ago. And and I looked at the table next to me and every single person was on their phone. And look, I've done it. Like 
I don't know that I've biked with my phone out. I probably wouldn't do that because I care a little bit more about my bones. <laughs> but <laughs> I've done it. Like, what do they say? People with glass houses shouldn't throw stones. I'm right. very aware that I have fallen prey to, oh, who was in that movie? Oh, let me check. And then I look at my phone and now I'm answering a text. And, you know, I'm not perfect by any means. But one way to really start to feel sort of the pain of it is to look around and see, oh my God, everyone is on their phone at the doctor's office, at the stores, mm-hmm. on the bus, in the movie theater. I mean, it is, it was interesting. I actually came across some really cool research in the book about double screening, that not only are we always on a screen, but this propensity to be on two screens at a time is growing in leaps and bounds. So I'm watching TV, but I'm also checking a text. I am on a Zoom call, but I am also doing something on my iPad. So this double screen is becoming a huge problem. And how could we possibly be mindful with one screen? But then two, so mindless, we would totally lose ourselves. Mm. It really takes some intentionality, like some real thought and intention. And that's what mindfulness is. That's where you're headed with all of this. But that's what what, I love about habits, sorry to interrupt, but because you don't need as much intention if it becomes a habit. So say, for example, you want to create the habit mm -hmm. of putting your phone, of having blocks of time in your day where the phone is away, you know, maybe during dinner, maybe for the first hour when you get home from work and you cultivate the habit of as soon as you put your keys down, the do not disturb box, the phone jail is right there and you put your phone in there and you lock it or you put it in the cupboard and you close the door. Now you don't need intention anymore because you have the habit. It's just this thing that you do. You come home, you lock up your phone for an hour, and now you spend time with your family or whoever it is that you spend your life with. So this is what I loved about this idea of automating mindfulness is like we use these habits as a way to automate. And now you don't need to remember to do it. You don't need to use your willpower. You don't need to even be motivated to do it. You don't even choose to do it. It's just something that just happens. Like brushing your teeth. I don't choose to brush my teeth every day. I don't use willpower. I don't say, all right, should I do it today? I'm not sure. No, I just do it because I've been doing it as soon as I get out of bed for four decades. (laughs) So it doesn't take any effort at all. So yes, intention, but when intention falls short, which it will, then we have to use habits. Mm. That's setting ourselves up for success. Mm-hmm. And acknowledging that we are a habit species, that we're going, we're already running on habits. We already, most of our life is the sum of our habits. It, Gretchen Rubin calls it the invisible architecture or infrastructure of our lives. We are built on habits. We run on habits. So when we start to really look at, okay, well, how can I add a few more and be really deliberate about building them so that I can start having more mindful moments in my day? There isn't a mountain to get to the top of, like I'm going to be 80% mindful or I'm going to get, you know, 100% mindful. There's no score. There's no grade. There's just you, me, us showing up for our lives and actually being able to, to live it and be in it rather than just being in our heads all the time, always just thinking about living. We're actually here to savor and cherish these moments. Mm. Well put. (laughs) 
So what are some easy next steps for anyone wanting to create a more mindful life? Mm, yeah. Well, I mean, I, the book is a great next step. So mm-hmm. <laughs> Absolutely. It's um, wonderful. I think that I, I'm proud of how it came together and each chapter has five different practices and habits to start and, and how to actually create them, where to sort of anchor them in your life and a couple of habits to maybe stop doing or to replace with better, with better habits. But I, I'm a huge proponent, and I know you know this about me, of having a morning centering practice. I think of it as almost like the rudder of my day. I get up, I make myself a cup of tea, and I come into my office, and that's when I spend time doing my inner work. And it doesn't mean that I don't revisit that work at any other points in the day. I do, but that is a very specific time every single day. But that is a time every day where I do my meditation, if that's what I feel like doing that day. I do my journaling. I read books that are nonfiction books that really inspire me. And I feel like that's kind of like, you know, we have the mother sauces, like that's kind of a mother sauce of mindfulness is being able to start your day mindfully, getting up a little bit earlier. So you're not kind of racing ahead of the clock all the time, being able to spend time alone, you know, for me to get up before my kids, before my husband, and just have time for myself. It's, probably the most nourishing thing that I've ever done. So I actually offer a free course on my website at kristaminary.com of how to establish a daily centering practice. And it's just got some videos and some helpful tools and some PDFs to print out that make that process easier. So that's the great next step as well. I love it. I love it. I love the way the book is laid out. I love that you dive into these different areas that are so important from eating to relationships to work life balance and how to bring mindfulness into work and the technology and devices. Like I loved that chapter to me. I was like, I'm so glad you addressed Mm. this. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, and and to me, I feel like you always write the book you need to read. And when Mm. I was putting some thoughts to different practices Some of them were practices that were really deeply embedded into my life already. And some of them were, were newer. And, you know, I was really trialing them out while I was writing the book and some stick and some don't, you know, there's 40 different practices in this book. I certainly don't think that someone's going to read it and they're going to implement or onboard all 40 of them. You know, maybe there's just two, maybe it's just one. And then you come back to the book a couple months later and, and you start another one. But it's just a matter of just being in that mindset of like, this matters, like mindfulness mm-hmm. matters. And finding the time to start developing some of these, these habits. I, I just can't think of a more worthwhile pursuit than being more aware. I think it just is so fruitful for every single area of our life when we start living mm-hmm. with more awareness or with just in a more awakened way. It's, I'll tell you, I've never met anyone who said, I wish I didn't do that. Right. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's wonderful. Kristen, thank you so much. Is there anything else that you want to tell people about your book or how to find you? Or is there anything we haven't addressed that you want to make sure we cover? Well, you can connect with me at kristenmaneri.com and 
you know, I have these conversations and you have this beautiful podcast and I have a beautiful podcast and it's just a great way to stay in these conversations all the time. And I have the fortune, good fortune of having conversations like this every single week with the authors that I have on my podcast. And so, you know, listeners can check that out as well. And yeah, it has been really great. I really appreciate you taking the time to do this. It's been really wonderful talking to you. Oh, it's been my pleasure. My pleasure. Thank you so much, Kristen. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of Always Evolving. Please feel free to share this episode with anyone you think might appreciate it. And if you enjoyed this podcast, let me know by leaving me a five-star rating. Until next time, keep learning, keep growing, keep evolving.